We're in 1 Corinthians, and I think we finally got through chapter 7, which means, inexorably, that we're now on chapter 8. This is food offered to idols, and he starts off now concerning food offered to idols, which indicates to me that he's been asked a question. Remember that there's a letter from the Corinthians that we have not seen. So a lot of 1 Corinthians is Paul answering questions of the Corinthian church. So I'm assuming that they have asked what to do about food offered to idols. And the reason that that becomes important is that in the pagan world, your local butcher shop would sell food that had been offered to the local god that morning or that afternoon or whatever. So one of the sources of meat that you would buy in the marketplace would be meat offered to idols. So I'm assuming that the question is, uh, what do we do about that? Now, the rest of Scripture actually has a fair amount to say about the subject. The first place that it's mentioned is in Exodus 34, starting in verse 11, Exodus 34, 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ushering. For you shall worship no other god, for Jehovah, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they pour after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited to eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. So the deal is, when you come into the land, you need to clean out all pagan worship, because if you don't, what's going to happen is your pagan neighbor down the road is going to say, hey, we got a feast coming this week, and we're going to go ahead and offer up or whatever we're going to offer up to whoever we're going to offer up to, why don't you come on over and join us for the barbecue? And naturally wanting to be neighborly and so forth, you might be tempted to show up. I don't know about you, but it has been my observations that a whole lot of believers are silent in the face of such exhortations from unbelievers. So the idea that if you live among pagans, you would then partake of their ceremony, not worshiping their idols, you understand, but just being neighborly and they're doing a barbecue and yeah, 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 they, they sacrificed this, whatever it was to whoever this morning, but yeah, what the heck. Or they're having an Easter egg hunt or whatever. So God says you need to clean all that stuff out lest it become a snare to you and you wind up partaking of their feasts. The next place it shows up, of course, is in Acts. And we went through that last time, and it's Acts 15 down to verse 19, Acts 15, 19. This is James speaking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, there is some question about what's being referred to there. Not the food sacrificed idols, that's not the problem. 
You remember that the burning question in front of the Council of Jerusalem is whether Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And they decided you don't have to do that. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the law of Moses. However, this is sort of what you do. And one opinion on that is that's sort of the minimum requirement that you have to go into the synagogue and listen to Moses being taught. James says in the letter, verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So one way to read this is, all right, you Gentiles have come in to the kingdom of God, you got the Holy Spirit, etc. Now what you need to do is you need to read the books. Well, the books are all in the synagogue. In order not to offend the Jews in the synagogue, this is sort of your minimum behavior requirement. Okay, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is simply that's forbidden for everybody. So two perspectives, and I don't care which one you have, because Yeshua himself talks about it in Revelation. So let's go to Revelation 2. So we're in Revelation 2, and this is to the Church of Pergamum. And for those of you who have not been through the letters to the churches in a while, Pergamum, the word in Greek, means mixed marriage. So, for example, polygamy means multiple wives, multiple gametes. Pergamum means a mixed marriage from the same root. I was not going to go through the seven letters to the seven churches tonight, but each church, its name typifies what the problems are in that church. The problem that Yeshua points out, in fact, is related to the name of the church itself. So the church in Smyrna, Smyrna means to crush because myrrh, in order to give forth its fragrance, is crushed, and myrrh is a funereal spice. So the church in Smyrna is being crushed. They're under persecution. The church in Pergamum is mixed marriage. And what you have then is a mixture of belief in God and pagan practices, which is what we would say the Sunday church is today. You have a belief in God, you have a belief in Messiah, but then you have all these pagan practices that have been brought in over the centuries. So you have, if you will, a mixed marriage. Without reading the whole letter, I'm going to go down to Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and to practice sexual immorality. Now, you remember in Numbers, that is the incident with Pincus, you know, where Pincus frog sticks Cozy and Zimri in front of the tabernacle. That's what he's referring to. So the doctrine of Balaam is Balaam taught the Moabites, this is how you can take down the Israelites. And the upshot of that teaching was it led some 23,000 Israelites to partake of food sacrificed to idols, and they died. So Yeshua has something to say about food sacrificed to idols. And then if we go down to verse 19, now this is the church at Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faithful service and patient endurance, 
and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So you've got Moses back in Exodus, speaking on behalf of God, who says, don't mess with pagan practices because it will lead you into eating food sacrificed to idols. And then Yeshua, at the end of the book, upbraids two of the churches for eating food sacrificed to idols. So it's a big deal. Of course, the Council of Jerusalem lists that as one of the things that Gentiles coming into the church must stop. So if we go now back to 1 Corinthians 8, where Paul seems to be answering a query, what we don't know off the top of our heads, I, I just don't know sequence, I don't know whether the church in Corinth has received the letter that was sent by the apostles in Acts 15. And so they now have this letter and they're saying, uh, Paul, how do we shop for meat? It could be that. Or it could be any other number of things. We haven't seen the letter that Paul is responding to, so we really don't know the circumstance, but he is clearly responding. And as we just went through, eating food sacrificed to idols is a big deal. With that background, 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. All right, now stop for a minute. What was the thing that he was nailing them for in the first several chapters of the book? Intellectual pride. Because remember, you had a faction that says, I follow Paul. You had another faction that said, I follow Apollos. And you had another faction that said, I don't remember who they followed. And they were arguing among themselves about points of doctrine and points of theology. And he goes in and slaps them upside the head and says, Hey, you Gentiles don't know much of anything. Don't get puffed up and argue with each other on points of theology about which you really have no depth of understanding. And remember he was saying, you guys can't even handle milk yet, much less meat. So he's taking these arrogant Gentiles. Remember, these are Greeks. Greeks pride themselves on their intellect. They're like the French. They pride themselves on being intellectual. So they're arguing fine points of theology with no basis in Torah underneath them to give them any depth. Years ago, I was arguing with a whole bunch of Sunday Christians on an internet discussion group. This was before we started the church. And they'd just get going and going, and they'd say, well, the Hebrew word here. And I finally said, guys, there isn't anybody on this list that speaks Hebrew. What you all speak is lexicon. In other words, you can go into the scripture, you can look up a Hebrew word, you can then go to a lexicon, and you look up the definition, and then you take that definition and you marry it with your supposed understanding of scripture, and you say, well, this is what the Hebrew means. But you're not a Hebrew speaker. You're not a Hebrew scholar. So the guys in the Corinthian church that are arguing with each other are sort of the same perspective. They have a little bit of knowledge, 
and my little bit of knowledge conflicts with your little bit of knowledge, and off we go. So Paul upbraids them about that. So he starts off here in chapter 8. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. That's what he was talking about at the beginning of the letter. You guys are puffed up in your knowledge that you think you have. And what he's saying is, that's wrong. Instead of arguing based on intellectual understanding, which, parenthesis, genealogy, you don't have very much of, you ought to be operating in fellowship, love, and community. So, verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, and, and in my translation it's small g with quotations around it, indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Yeshua Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the first thing he's saying is, there is no God but Jehovah, and there is no Lord but Yeshua. Everything else is false. That's his baseline. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. So he's sort of Tickling their intellectual fantasy. You know. All right, we all know that these idols don't mean anything, but not everybody does. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So what he's saying is there are people in your church that have come out of paganism, and for them, the pagan worship and the pagan religion has got emotional hooks in them. You may intellectually know that Yeshua is Lord and Jehovah is God, but if you've spent your entire life bowing down before one of the pagan gods, if you then partake of food offered to that pagan god, you're going to have an emotional reaction. And what's going to do is it's going to mess with you. Have you ever done anything that you intellectually know is right, but you just felt rotten about? Just because of emotional connections. I'll use an army example. Having to come down really hard on a friend. In my official capacity, this guy that I liked a lot had done something that I needed to punish. Knew I needed to punish him. Knew it had to be done. Did it. And still felt kind of queasy in my stomach about the whole thing. Situations like that happen all the time in life. And so the idea here that someone who has grown up all of his life worshiping some pagan god, you know, goes to the pagan temple every feast day, goes offering all that kind of stuff, he's been involved in the pagan church, and suddenly realizes that this pagan god is not a god, all the emotions that he grew up with don't go away. And so if he is presented with food that has been offered to this idol, and somebody eats it in his presence, he's going to have an emotional reaction. So what Paul is saying here is, guys, you may understand that idols don't mean anything. And in fact, you may have not worshipped idols before you came into the church. But there are people around you who don't have the same understanding and have different emotional reactions to that. And you need to consider them when you're thinking about food that's been offered to idols. 
So verse 7 again. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food it will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. Now, here is a place that we've got to come to a pause because I understand what Paul is saying, but I must respectfully disagree with it because we just went through a whole litany of things where both Moses and Yeshua and the Council of Jerusalem get upset with people eating food offered to idols. Now, full stop. There is a possibility that he is making a distinction in his mind between Jews and Gentiles. The stringent prohibitions in Torah and, and so forth, it may be in his mind that those apply to Jews and that Gentiles are not bound by the same strictures, which would lend credence to the idea that telling Gentiles to refrain from food sacrificed to idols is a condition where they can go into the synagogue and not offend the Jews. Just the way it's written, it sounds to me like a much weaker statement than what is made other places in Scripture about the same subject. And so my question is, why is he making a weaker statement? And the answer that I come up with is perhaps, in his mind, there is a difference between what's required of Gentiles and what's required of Jews. Verse 8 again. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Messiah died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak to sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, he is specifically talking about eating in a temple. If we go down to chapter 10, and we might just as well do the whole subject right now, let's go down to 1 Corinthians 10, because he's going to talk about it again. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 14. So 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we blessed, is it not for a participation in the blood of Messiah? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Messiah? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered demons and not to God, I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a much stronger statement. And there he's saying, not only no, but heck no. Which, by the way, goes back to the Exodus passage that we read, that by eating food sacrificed to idols, you are, in fact, participating in idol worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. 
all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then you do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. This is what I call the don't ask, don't tell idol policy. Paul starts off back in chapter 8 and says, demons have no existence. There is only one God. And idols don't represent anything. They're nothing. They're zip. If I may infer what he's saying is, these idols really have no meaning except the meaning they have to people. And so if somebody doesn't make a point of telling you that the meat was sacrificed to an idol, the meat itself is unchanged because the idol itself is nothing, assuming it's an otherwise kosher animal. So if you go to the marketplace and they got a goat carcass hanging up there, and you say, I need a slice of goat for supper tonight, and they say, here you go, you don't need to inquire whether the guy got the goat from the local temple or whether he went out and got it from the local shepherd direct. You don't need to ask that question because the idol has no meaning. But if he says to you, this is the best goat, because this was chosen and offered to some god this morning, that god only takes the good stuff, so this goat is really prime stuff, at that point you've got to say, no, I can't eat it because it's been offered to an idol. And the reason you do that is not because there's anything wrong with the goat, but because your witness to the butcher or anybody who is with you will be damaged. I go out to breakfast every Tuesday with some guys I've known in the Episcopal Church for 25 years. We've gone out to breakfast every Tuesday morning. And two interesting things have happened since I became messianic. They've quit eating bacon. Now, they eat bacon at home, I'm sure. And I have never said a word to them. I have not said anything to them. But they have simply quit having bacon or ham with their breakfast. And thing two is, as I thought about breakfast in a greasy spoon, I thought, they fry those eggs on the same griddle that they fry bacon on. So I have gone to poached eggs and eliminated that problem. But as you go out in the world, people don't think about these things. And what Paul is saying here is, you're going to the meat market. And if nobody mentions idols, as far as you're concerned, you're buying a goat roast, and buy the goat roast, take it home, roast it, and enjoy it. Unless somebody makes a point of saying that this was offered to an idol, and then you may not. We've got two different things going on here. We're talking about new Gentile believers. One of the things that happens as you sit and listen to Moses is the Holy Spirit will convict you of things. Another personal example. I was driving from here up to Rapid City to visit my aunt after I had become a messianic believer. Pulled into a gas station, filled up my truck, bought a bag of pork rinds, drove off, and had eaten half of it before I realized what I had done. And, oh, shoot, 
it never even crossed my windscreen until about halfway through that bag of pork rinds, and I suddenly realized what I was eating. I can remember the first time we went through unleavened bread, going to my breakfast with my Episcopalian friends and getting my normal poached eggs with toast. Well, now on unleavened bread, I get oatmeal. But I missed a few of them before I finally figured that out. So the question becomes, you as a believer who are a Gentile who are coming into this stuff, has Moses convicted you yet that pork is not something you should eat? That's the first question. If Moses has convinced you that you shouldn't be eating pork, then yes, if they give you a slice of ham for supper, say politely, no thank you, I don't eat pork. So there isn't anything in there saying that you have to eat pork. What it's saying is you don't have to ask questions about whether or not it was sacrificed in order to be prissy in your conscience. But if you personally have decided, I'm not doing pork and shrimp anymore, I'm convicted, and I don't do pork and shrimp anymore. And so you go to a dinner with your Gentile friend, and they pump out the shrimp cocktail, you can just politely say, I'm sorry, I don't eat shellfish. So what he's saying is, this is parentheses now, it's not in the scripture, this is my explanation. Assuming the meat is something that you would otherwise eat, you need not question whether it was sacrificed to an idol. Gentiles coming into the church did not grow up with this stuff. And you have got decades of life experience and habits that you've built up over the years that you don't even think about, like my example with the pork rinds. Pulling into a convenience store and grabbing a bag of pork rinds for the road was not even anything I ever thought about. It was just, oh yeah, here, throw those on the bill and off we go. And you're not going to suddenly change a lifetime of habits. Moses has to convict you. God has to convict you. And then you got all these habits that you've had all your life that you've got to work your way through. So what Paul is saying here is, you live in a Gentile world, you go to the meat market, and it's entirely possible that the meat there will have been sacrificed to an idol. You don't have to ask. But if somebody says it was sacrificed to an idol, then you may not. It's the same thing with going to somebody's house for supper. If you've been convicted that shrimp are no good and they offer you a shrimp cocktail, you're perfectly free to say, no, thank you, I don't eat shellfish. But you're not required to ask if the beef roast was part of that day's sacrifice. 